Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Byron Howell, and this is the Byron Howell Ministries podcast. Today, we are going to talk about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Uh, I believe like last time or the time before, this is a, this is a redo on a message I taught at the Grace Family Church Prayer and Healing School. And let me just mention, we do the Grace Family Church Prayer and Healing School every Wednesday at the Carrollwood campus, which is out on Waters Avenue at 7 p.m. And it's just a wonderful time. And we are able to talk about lots of different things, uh, prayer, the Holy Spirit, how to receive healing in your bodies. And, and it's just wonderful. And that's led by Pastor Dale Brooks, Pastor Doug Henders, and Rasan Hussein. And it's just an awesome time. So I think you should you should check it out sometime. I think you'd really enjoy it. And, you know, as part of this this discussion on prayer, we've, we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, and we've also talked about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and praying in other tongues. And so I'm blessed to be able to speak about this subject. I've taught about it at the Prayer and Healing School before, and um, I'm just fortunate that we got to do it again. And so I'm going to add a few things this time that maybe weren't in the last teaching. So if you did hear the last one, um, that's great. I hope you enjoyed it. But I think, you know, I don't think this is going to be a waste of your time. I think we're going to look at a few few new things this time that are going to bless you as well. So anyway, let's let's dive in. And our first scripture comes to us tonight from Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. And this is really a fascinating scripture for the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or baptism with the Holy Spirit, I should say. Because this is from John the Baptist, and, and John the Baptist is here talking about Jesus, and he's talking about Jesus' earthly ministry before Jesus' ministry even began. So this is Matthew three eleven, And John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this is this is fascinating on a number of levels, but notice the importance of the baptism with the Holy Spirit here. Jesus's ministry hasn't even begun in, on the earth, and here's John the Baptist talking and saying, "Look, this guy is coming, right? The Messiah is coming, and one of the primary aspects of his ministry is to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." And it's really all interesting to note, you know, who he was talking to. It's not like he had some sort of special group of just the, the 12 guys that were going to become the apostles. Like he somehow knew ahead of time. No, he was talking to some very large crowd there. The Remember, it's the crowds of Judea and Jerusalem and roundabout. You know, they all came down to be baptized by John in the river. So that's who he's talking to there. And. We just see that, that this is something that Jesus has for everybody, that a part of Jesus's ministry for everybody is the baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's a very important idea, and we're going to come back to that. But I think it's fascinating to note that this is such an important part of Jesus's ministry that John the Baptist was talking about it before the earthly ministry of Jesus even began. So now let's fast forward. We're going to fast forward all the way through the earthly ministry of Jesus and after the death and resurrection of Jesus to when Jesus is, is now back with the disciples in the earth. 
And we are going to look at the last conversation that Jesus has with the disciples before he returns back to heaven. And we get parts of this conversation in the books of Luke, Mark, and Acts. And we really know it's the same conversation uh, a few different ways. But in short, yeah, he's he appears to the disciples. They're all eating. They talk. And then he is taken back up to heaven where he still is today. So all of those events happen in all three of these passages, as we're going to see in a second. But we're also going to see the repetition of common themes in these passages. And I truly believe it's the same conversation, just recorded slightly differently in these three books. But so my point is here, let's see, what was what were the last words from Jesus to the disciples before he goes back to heaven? The last words that Jesus spoke on the earth to his disciples. That's what we're looking at here. Let's see what was what was so important to Jesus that these were the final things that he said to his disciples before he went back to heaven. This first passage is Luke 24, 36 through 53. And I, I do skip a couple of the verses in the middle just for the sake of time. So while they were still talking about this, Jesus stood himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out of the vicinity vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. <clears throat> so that's the last conversation of between uh, Jesus and the disciples as recorded in the book of Luke. Now let's go to Mark. Excuse me if you just heard me have a sip of coffee there. This is Mark 16 verses 14 through 19. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will speak. Uh, they will pick up snakes with their hands and when they drink Deadly poison will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Now let's look at Acts chapter 1 verses 4 through 9. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So I know that's kind of three long reads to kick us off here today, but again, let's not underestimate the importance of these passages being being kind of a, a recitation or a recounting 
of the last conversation between Jesus and the disciples. And so let's look at what we know. In, in Luke and Acts, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem until they received the gift that was promised by God. Now in Acts, he tells us specifically that this gift was the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And moreover, he tells us when you receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, you will receive power from on high. And with that power, you are going to be a witness for Jesus. And so what do we know from Mark? When you receive this power, you can lay hands on the sick and see them recover, and you can speak in new tongues. And there's other manifestations as well. But, but think of the extreme importance of these passages here and just what Jesus is telling them. He, he's saying, just go wait in Jerusalem until you receive this power. Until you receive this new manifestation of your relationship with the Holy Spirit. This is so important for the rest of your lives that I want you to wait and do nothing until you receive this baptism with the Holy Spirit. But in fact, when it comes, this is going to be such an important moment that it is going to empower you to be a witness for me to the rest of the world. I mean, that to me is extremely important, fascinating in every way, extremely important, worthy of the most careful study. And it's something that we really need to think about. So now let's go to Acts chapter two, verses one through six. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard in their own language being spoken. So that was the day it finally came. They were in Jerusalem and the Jesus sent the gift, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It came and it, it came and all of the initial apostles received. And, and so there is this immediate manifestation. And so now let's see what happens next. This is just a little later in the same chapter. This is Acts 2 verses 14 through 18. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. You see, we didn't talk about this last time, but this is in extremely instructive to really understanding various aspects of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So we know that, in fact, the baptism of the Holy Spirit has now arrived. It arrived in Acts chapter 2. But what else do we know? Peter now tells us that this is the same manifestation of the Spirit or the same gift of the Spirit for God's people that was prophesied by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2. And so now when we bring that understanding in, we learn a little bit more about it. 
And, and, you know, I just have a couple of takeaways here. Notice that it says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. You see, God wants all of his people baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that echoes perfectly what John the Baptist was teaching to the people that came down to him to be baptized, right? Jesus is going to baptize all of you in the Holy Spirit and fire. God will, wants to pour out his spirit on all people. You see, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is for all Christians, for all believers. God has it for all of his children. And just notice also, and maybe this goes without saying, but he says, your sons and your daughters, right? This is for men and women equally, no difference. And I think, I think at least that's worth mentioning. So, okay, so we've seen that if nothing else, this baptism in the Holy Spirit, this gift of the Holy Spirit, this empowerment because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we've seen that it was extremely important to Jesus. We've seen that it was an extremely important part of Jesus's ministry. And then, in fact, the first apostles did receive this baptism in the Holy Spirit. So that's how far we've come. And now let's look at and see where in the Bible other people received this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to pick this up. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 5, and verses 14 through 17. And let me just mention the Samaritans were not Jews. They, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure how you would define their uh, their religion, but basically it was kind of an adulterated or an improperly modified form of Judaism. So, so they were not considered Jews. The, again, this is Acts 8. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that might, that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So that's a wonderful passage and it's also very instructive. So first, the Samaritans believed the word of God. It says they, quote, accepted the word of God. Then it tells us that they were baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they received the Holy Spirit. And so there's a few things we could glean from this passage, but very interesting to note that in addition to God having the baptism of the Holy Spirit for Jews and the first apostles, now apparently the baptism in the Holy Spirit is available to this random group of Samaritans. And that's a wonderful thing. And, and notice also that it says Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So, it's a biblical practice. If I want someone else to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, it would be biblically appropriate for me to lay hands on them and pray for them to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now let's go to Acts chapter 10. And this is Peter speaking. And now he's in the home of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And, and if the Samaritans were kind of one step removed from the Jews, you know, Cornelius and the Gentiles, they're all the way out there. They're, they're not Jews in any sense of the word. And so now we're going to see the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming to the Gentiles. 
Peter says in Acts 10, verse 36, and then 43 through 48, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So again, very fascinating passage. We can learn a lot here. The first and most obvious thing we learn is that in addition to the Jews, in addition to the Samaritans, God has the baptism in the Holy Spirit for the Gentiles. And praise the Lord. Again, a wonderful thing. But maybe, perhaps most interestingly, we see that they receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit in the exact same moment that they became Christians. And I love what Peter says, because it really expels all doubt about what happens here. He says, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And notice also that they were speaking in tongues. So we know here, you know, with, by a few ways that the moment they believed the word of God as being preached by, pre, uh, by, excuse me, as being preached by Peter, they also received the baptism in the Holy Spirit at that same moment. They had not yet even been baptized with water. And one of the big takeaways for me here is you know, there's only one qualification to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and that you be a believer in Jesus Christ, that you confess Jesus as your Lord. That is the only requirement, is that you be a Christian. And at that moment, the same moment you become a Christian, you, in the eyes of God, who alone can give the gift of the Holy Spirit, in the eyes of God, the moment you become a Christian, you are fully qualified to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that this is a widely held belief, but if you've ever heard anybody say that you need to reach a certain level of maturity or sanctification or knowledge, any of those things that you need to, to go through that process before you're a good candidate to receive the Holy Spirit or the baptism in the Holy Spirit in the eyes of God. Well, what they've told you is unbiblical. And maybe they've said it out of a, of a good and pure heart, but they didn't know the scriptures. Because the Bible is very clear here. If you have become a Christian God wants you baptized in the Holy Spirit. And remember, God wants all his people. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God wants everyone to be a Christian, and God wants every Christian baptized in the Holy Spirit. So, now those events um, that we just saw in Samaria, in Jerusalem, and now uh, at the home of Cornelius, the Gentile, those events took place a relatively short time after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now let's go to Acts chapter 19. 
And this is fascinating because if you're just reading the Bible, you might say, well, oh, the events in Acts chapter 19 happened, you know, I don't know, a couple of hours after the events of Acts chapter 10. But no, in fact, it was more like 20 years. And so the events of Acts 19 are most likely 20 to 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fascinating the amount of time that actually passes in the book of Acts. So this is Acts 19, 1 through 6. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So, you know, I really, and if you've listened to me talk, you know, I really think this is a very important passage, a very instructive passage, and and I really like it. And let me just say, you know, we learn in Acts chapter 18, I didn't want to read it all for you here today, but it's very interesting. And so we learn in Acts chapter 18 a little bit about Apollos, and Apollos was an awesome guy, and, you know, he received the word of God, he became a Christian, he began speaking boldly, but he only understood, you know, salvation in Jesus Christ and repentance Uh, in the baptism of repentance, we could say it that way. He didn't really understand about the full manifestation of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or this relationship with the Holy Spirit that God wants us to have. So he's doing a great job. He's going around the world preaching the gospel and getting people saved, but he doesn't really understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you see, there's a lot of Christians like that, and we don't need to go too far down this road. But there are a lot of Christians like that who they're doing a wonderful job. They're preaching the gospel. But in fact, they haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit and and they don't really understand it so that they could appropriately communicate it to other people. Now, we learn in the Bible that uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, Aquila and Priscilla meet Apollos and they explain the baptism of the Holy Spirit more fully to him. And, and that's a wonderful thing. So he gets he gets set on that as well. But see, we find now this group of believers in Ephesus that believed in Jesus because of the ministry of the Apollo of Apollos. So we find then this group of believers, which is similar to a group of believers that you could find all over the world today. They believe in Jesus. They received Jesus, but they've not been appropriately taught in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And let me just say, maybe you're in that boat. And, you know, this is not condemnation. This is not judgment at all. But let's just acknowledge that here we see in the Bible a situation that is still very common in the earth today, where we have a group of uh, wonderful Christians, devout disciples of Jesus, but they haven't been taught about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul meets them, And first of all, you know, it's not like he drove up to Georgia and, you know, 
encountered a group of believers. He was a church on every corner up there, it seems like. Right? No, he was traveling the world where there were, relatively speaking, very few Christians. And he gets to Ephesus and he finds a group of believers. So that in and of itself was probably a, an awesome moment and a, a wonderful moment for Paul. But notice the very first thing he asked them. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's the very first question that Paul asked this group of disciples. And you think, why would he ask them that first? I mean, think of all the things he could possibly ask them. Think of all the questions that the Bible could tell us that he asked them. You know, what kind of distribution program do you have for the poor? What kind of Bible study, Bible reading, children's church, you name it. What, tell, tell me about all of the wonderful things you're doing for the kingdom of God. Let's talk about this. No, Paul doesn't say any of that. The first thing he says is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now let's talk about the reasons why he would ask that question. Well, the first reason, obviously, is he didn't know. Maybe these people in Ephesus were like the believers at Cornelius's house, who they received the gospel and they received the baptism with the Holy Spirit at exactly the same time. It's possible. Maybe it happened. Paul doesn't know. But on the other hand, maybe they were like the Samaritans and they received the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believed in Jesus, but they had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them and so he can know, so he can understand, so he knows what he needs to do to minister to this group of believers. And you see, why else did he ask them this question? And this, I think, maybe is the most important because it is the most important question that he could have asked them. You see, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is the most important experience that a Christian will have after they get saved. Now, now, <clears throat> I don't want to go too far with that. And I don't want you to hear judgment, condemnation, especially if you've been saved for a long time and you've never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In terms of some of the good works that you've done since you've been a Christian, you know, maybe you've preached the gospel to people. Maybe you've led a Bible study. Maybe you've done all sorts of wonderful works that are going to have eternal significance in the kingdom of God. That That is awesome. That is wonderful. Glory to God. But in terms of your personal relationship with God and in terms of your potential to do for the kingdom of God, the most important experience in your life after you get saved is receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And you see, that's why the very first thing Paul says is, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because if you did not... We need to make sure that we take care of this right now because it is the most important thing I can teach you. It is the most important thing we are going to talk about and we are going to have this conversation right now. And, you know, again, focusing on that question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You know, something that I want to point out that is is a little bit Maybe fascinating, but tragic at the same time is, you know, when 
do most churches ask that question? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? When do most churches ask that question? When do most people ask that question? Well, they don't. Not anymore. The baptism in the Holy Spirit, and especially the speaking in tongues, it has become so taboo. We've become so afraid that it's weird or it's spooky or it's whatever that the vast majority of churches, they don't even ask that, that question anymore when in fact, it is the most important question that can be asked to a Christian. Have you received the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Now, at Grace Family Church, you know, they do actually ask that question. They may ask it other times, but they definitely ask it when you go through the freedom encounter. And that's on the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's the last teaching in the freedom package and is part of the freedom encounter. And if you've not been through freedom, if you go to grace, I can't encourage you enough because freedom is amazing. It's wonderful. It's it's awesome on so many levels. We can't get into that now. But at least at Grace, we do have this opportunity. But this question, the importance of this question, and I'm probably belaboring a little bit now, but the importance of this question cannot be overstated. And so I ask it to each one of you right now. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And if you did, wonderful. And if you received the Holy Spirit, the baptism with the Holy Spirit at another time, as I did, as many people do, that's also a wonderful thing. But if here today you're listening to this and you have yet to receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit, then today is your day. Because God wants all of his people to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you are, if you are a Christian, you are fully qualified to receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And you can call me. I can pray with you. I can meet up with you. If, if not me, if that's not interesting to you, perfect. Great. Call somebody else. Uh, there are a lot of people, you know, Pastor Fritz Ruhe, Pastor Dale Brooks, Doug, Pastor Doug Henders, Rasan Hussein, Pastor Craig. I mean, find somebody that you, you know, like, for lack of a better word, and meet up with them and receive this baptism with the Holy Spirit today. Because that's God's will for your life. And so we we look at this just to recap before we kind of move on to our next subject. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is a gift that God has for all of his people. And he wants all of his people to receive this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, remember, you are endued with power from on high and that power we've looked at it you know on this podcast and in other places that's the greek word dunamis which is the miracle working power you know god wants you to have his miracle working power in your life for miracles of healing for miracles of provision for miracles of deliverance for all of the different types of miracles that we see in the word of god God wants you to have his miracle working power in your life because he loves you and because he loves everyone else. He wants to see supernatural power show up in your life to bless you and to bless others. And also because that's an extremely important part of being an effective witness 
for the kingdom of God. And yes, I know that miracles and supernatural is just not as prevalent today as it was 2,000 years ago, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And no, I fully agree. It's not required to be an effective witness for Jesus. But, but the biblical model is that God wants to confirm his word with signs following. We should all be flowing in the miraculous. We should all be flowing in the supernatural. You see, that is the biblical truth. You know, I don't know how many millions of Christians are out there that aren't baptized in the Holy Spirit, but all of them should be. God wants all of them. And in the same way, God wants all of us to have his miracle working power. So, yeah, you know, to be honest, I don't really want to need a miracle in my personal life. I, In the sense of I don't want to need a healing miracle in my own body or in the body of one of my family members. But I want the miraculous healing power of God in my life so that I can minister to others. And yet, yes, there's no question that sometimes the supernatural power of God is, is a wonderful thing to have at your disposal. But I think the biggest reason that I want it is so that I can be an effective witness for the kingdom of God. And you see, that really takes us to the other side of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift my father has promised. You will be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And what are you going to do then? You are going to be a witness to the ends of the earth. When you receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit, you are a supernaturally empowered witness of Jesus, witness for Jesus and witness for the kingdom of God so that you can help get others saved. And I'll tell you, I think this is extremely important because, you know, I've been to Haiti a number of times and I've preached in Haiti a number of times. And you know what I've found is, it, you know, it's actually not hard to preach in Haiti it's not really difficult to, to feel the presence of the Lord and a holy boldness when you're in Haiti and you kind of have this invested authority automatically in the eyes of everyone because you, you're obviously there as a missionary and things like that. But, you know, it can be really hard to, to witness to my neighbors. And, and I don't, I admit I haven't done a great job of that. But, you know, it can be, it can be very difficult to witness to the people in your daily life. But this baptism with the Holy Spirit will help you. It will empower you and it will it will create this relationship. Candidly, it, it creates this manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your life. Where now as a biblically anointed witness for the kingdom of God, you're going to start feeling prompted like never before. Because God knows now you are empowered. Now you are ready. Now it's your time. And, and you are able to preach the gospel to anyone. Anyone. It's not your job to get people saved, but it is your job to share the gospel. And when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you are now an officially licensed and empowered witness for Jesus according to God. That's the truth. That's the biblical reality. So I hope you would agree, you know, if you believe the Bible, then candidly, you would agree with what I'm telling you, because we've read it right here in the Bible. And and so you would see that this is extremely important. But now let's spend a few minutes talking about speaking in tongues. And speaking in tongues is a very controversial subject. It certainly should not be, but it is. 
And it's basically a controversial subject because it looks weird, it sounds weird, and, you know, people have done weird things with speaking in tongues, and therefore it's got kind of a bad rap. But, like the baptism with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues is an extremely important gift that God has for all of his believers. So let's start by looking at Mark chapter 16 again, verse 17. And we read this before, but now let's read it again, because now we're specifically looking at the concept or the practice of speaking in tongues. And Jesus said, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons and they will speak in new tongues. So right there, we have the idea, at least in principle, that Jesus wants all believers to drive out demons in Jesus' name and to speak in new tongues. In the same way God wants all believers to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, God wants all believers to speak in new tongues. And now let me just say that may go against what you've heard or what you've been taught, and we're going to address that here today. But before we move on, I want to focus on the word new for a moment. He says they will speak in new tongues. The word new there is actually an interesting Greek word. It's not the word neo that you might think of if, if you happen to have any idea. If someone said, hey, what's the Greek word for new? Well, you might think neo. But it's actually the word kainos. And uh, kainos is really referring to something new or fresh something that's never been used before. When Jesus says you put new wine into new wineskins, for example, the word new for the wineskins is the word kainos, something never used before, new vessel. So I think that's important, especially because we're going to look at how speaking in tongues actually has different manifestations. But the one that Jesus says all believers are going to do, all believers should drive out demons in the name of Jesus, and all believers should speak in kainos tongues. So keep that in mind. Now let's go to Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Again, the day of Pentecost, when the baptism with the Holy Spirit was first received by the apostles. <clears throat> it says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying at Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So this is another manifestation. This is actually the first time that we might say someone was speaking in tongues. But notice that it says, <clears throat> All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other tongues. That word in the Greek is heteros. Pretty much everyone these days is familiar with the Greek prefix hetero, and it just means other or different. And here they're speaking in heteros tongues. And we see in this manifestation, all of the people in the crowd, it says each one heard their own language being spoken. So that's doesn't sound like a kainos tongue. That sounds like a heteros tongue. So now let's look at 1 Corinthians 12. And to continue understanding this, we're going to read verses 7 through 10. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. 
And here, and let me just paraphrase here, Paul is now talking about the various spiritual gifts that God gives to believers. We don't all have the same spiritual gifts as this passage clearly shows, but we get different spiritual gifts depending on God's calling on our life. So again, forgive me for kind of interrupting the passage here. So let me start again. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. So here we clearly see that speaking in different kinds of tongues is one of these spiritual gifts. And in this passage, very interestingly, the word different kinds in the Greek is genos. And that word genos, like gene, refers to different kindreds, countries, or nations. The, the languages or the tongues of different people groups or nationalities, so to speak. So this is Geno's tongues that he mentions in this list of spiritual gifts. And, you know, that sounds to me a lot like what happened in Acts chapter 2, where each person who heard the apostles speaking in tongues heard their own language being spoken. That sounds a lot like Geno's tongues, the tongues of different people, groups, or nations. Now, let's go down a little further in 1 Corinthians 12, because we're going to quickly address one of the very common arguments against speaking in tongues, or an argument that everyone should speak in tongues. So before we go to verse 29, let's just remember that in verses 7 through 10, Paul lists these gifts of the Spirit. And he says, you know, to one is given the message of wisdom, to another message of knowledge, to another faith, to another healing, to another miraculous power, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. So he lists those gifts. Now let's go into 29, verse 29, where he's making the point that not everyone has the same gifts. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? And clearly the answer there is no. And so people will say, because of this passage, do all speak in tongues? No, everyone does not speak in tongues. But here is the misunderstanding. By, t by taking that out of context, you are radically altering what Paul is saying there. He's specifically referring to the spiritual offices and the spiritual gifts. Notice the exact same pattern. Miracles, healing, tongues, interpretation. He's talking there not about Kainos tongues, but he's talking about the gift of Genos tongues. Not everyone has the gift to be able to speak supernaturally in the language of other nations or people groups. And and you see, it's very interesting because, you know, I've been kind of in this world a long time. 
And I've, I've definitely had experiences where someone told me, hey, I was praying in tongues and someone came up to me and said I was speaking in perfect Spanish or I was speaking in perfect Hebrew. And, and let me, I wasn't very clear there. That's never happened to me. I've never felt that I've functioned in the gift of Gino's tongues personally. But those are stories that other people will share how someone came up to them and, oh, my gosh, I mean, I'm just I'm remembering a story right now where someone said, oh, you are speaking perfect Russian. How did you even know? And of course, the person didn't know Russian at all. But the person who heard in perfect Russian got totally blessed, heard something powerful, heard some life changing word about the Lord and, and you know, got saved or got healed or whatever it was. I don't remember. But you see, this gift of Geno's tongues is still alive and well today. But that gift does not show up for everyone. Not everyone has that gift is a better way to say it. So now let's go on to 1 Corinthians 14, 27 through 28. Because we need to talk about the role of an interpreter here. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time. And someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. So right here, if we're reading aggressively, we would say to ourselves, interpreter? Well, why are we talking about an interpreter? Because I thought that in the true speaking in tongues, everybody hears in their own language. That's part of the miracle. Well, in fact, this is a different manifestation of speaking in tongues. In this manifestation, we are not speaking in Geno's tongues. We are not speaking in other known languages. In fact, in this manifestation, we are speaking in a, a new tongue that nobody understands except the interpreter. So in this manifestation of speaking in tongues, you would have a person speak in tongues in a public setting, but only one person can understand, and it's a supernatural understanding. This doesn't mean like the interpreter, like, you know, I minored in Spanish and I can interpret for you. No, this is the spiritual gift of interpretation of tongues that we just read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In this instance, we have someone who is supernaturally empowered to interpret a new tongue and deliver that message to the people. So this is the second manifestation of speaking in tongues. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians 14.2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. So, again, reading aggressively, what does this teach us? And, you know, let me just say, um, reading the Bible very analytically and critically, aggressively, it's actually a really fun thing to do. And I really encourage you to start looking at the Bible this way, if this is something you don't practice on your own. You know, I, I enjoy and I read the Bible to my kids and just, just going straight through the Bible. And, you know, like right now, my kids and I, we're going through Romans and I'm just, I'm just loving it as, as I'm, you know, they're just getting so 
persuaded and invested in hearing, you know, Paul's argument about salvation by faith and grace alone. And it's wonderful to go through the Bible, you know, kind of straight through line by line. But to also really pick out a subject, maybe you're going through a particular situation and you want to study that subject, or maybe, you know, for some reason, the particular subject has jumped out to your mind and you feel like you should study it. Don't get the wrong idea. That was actually the work of the Holy Spirit highlighting something you should study. But in either event, you know, to really start pulling out the verses on a subject and reading them to understand on a deeper level. That's actually, once you start doing it, I think you're going to find that it's a very enjoyable thing to do. But I forgive me, I've totally digressed here. Back to tongues. So he says in 14.2, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. So wait a second, Paul. What, What are you talking about? I thought... First of all, I thought that when I speak in tongues, everybody understands me in their own language and we don't need an interpreter. It's just this miracle. Okay, okay. But then I, then I thought, well, somebody's going to understand because they're going to interpret, they're going to interpret my tongues for the larger group. But no, this is a third manifestation of the gift of speaking in tongues. Fascinating, because in this manifestation, no one understands you, not the crowd in their own language, not an interpreter who's supernaturally empowered to understand you. Nobody understands you and you are not speaking to the crowd. You are not speaking to the church. You are speaking to God alone and only he understands you. This is the third manifestation of speaking in tongues. This is the kainos tongues that Jesus wants everybody to have because not everybody speaks in Geno's tongues. Not everybody is going to speak publicly in a way that can be interpreted to the group, but everybody, all believers, shall speak in new tongues. And this is the manifestation that God has for everyone because when you're praying in this unknown tongue, God understands you and you are speaking directly to God by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at all of the different reasons that this is a really important practice. But before we move on, let me just say this is what we refer to as our private prayer language. You see, God may not have called you to speak publicly and miraculously in a way that other people can hear in Russian and Spanish or whatever. And he may not have ever called you to stand up publicly and give a tongue in church. I've never, I've never done that either. And to be honest, this may sound terrible, but I kind of hope I'm not called to that because you look weird. But look, let's just be honest. That's my mind that's still conditioned by this world and inappropriate teachings that I've heard that, oh, this is weird. This is weird. Look, it's not weird to God. Spiritual things that we consider weird aren't weird to God at all, right? In fact, speaking in kainos tongues, it's not supposed to be weird. It's supposed to be daily. It's supposed to be common. It's supposed to be for everyone and a part of every Christian's life. And so that's what we're going to focus on with our last few minutes here together. Because remember, I told you that the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues are, are two gifts 
that God has for his children. And now we're going to look at just how powerful a gift the private prayer language really is. So this is 1 Corinthians 14.2. We'll look at it again. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. So when you are speaking in an unknown tongue, God understands you. You are speaking directly to God and you are uttering mysteries by the Spirit of God. Fascinating, fascinating. Let's look briefly at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, so we can get a little more understanding. It says, But whoever is united with the Lord is one spirit with him. You see, when you become a Christian, in that moment, your spirit is reborn. It's not your soul uh, or your mind that got reborn again instantly. It's not your physical body, obviously, that got reborn again instantly. It's your spirit that got born again instantly the moment you became a Christian. It was born again completely righteous, perfect like God, perfect in every way, and uh, you know, cleansed of all sin, and even more than that, united with the Spirit of God, literally one united spirit with God. And that's kind of a spiritual reality that may even go beyond our mental ability to understand. But in fact, if you are a Christian, while you have your unique, individualized, personal spirit, your spirit is literally united into one new spirit with the Spirit of God. So you retain individuality, but you also have a oneness with God now in your spirit. And let me just say in Ephesians chapter 2, if I'm not mistaken, it's in chapter 2 where it talks about how we are seated together in Christ in heavenly places. This is how, right? Because we have a unified spirit with Christ through the Holy Spirit. Yes, I'm here on earth, but in my unified spirit with God, I'm also in Christ in the throne room of God right now. Now, that's some deep spiritual stuff, but I wanted to mention it because somebody came up to me last night at Prayer and Healing School and just said how they really appreciated me me highlighting that issue. But anyway, we are one united spirit with God, and when we pray in tongues, we are uttering mysteries by the Spirit. Or to put it another way, the Spirit of God which is united with my spirit, is now praying out mysteries through my mouth. Fascinating, fascinating reality. Let's keep going. Jude 1, verses 20 through 21. But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So it says, when you are praying in the Holy Ghost or praying in the Spirit, and, and the way we pray in the Spirit is by praying in other tongues. And let me just say, you know, we could, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but the the key biblical way. So you can be led by the Spirit of God when you are praying in your earthly language. And that's a wonderful thing. And yes, that that's definitely, uh, you know, praying with the Spirit. But the only biblical way to truly pray in the spirit where there's a, a true union 
between the Spirit of God and your prayer is by praying in other tongues. That's that's the biblical truth when you really study it out. But when you are praying in the Holy Ghost, praying in the Spirit, this says you are building up yourself on your most holy faith. Really building yourself up spiritually, building yourself up in your faith life. And remember, the just shall live by faith. As you've seen, we've talked about here how extremely important faith is. So this is teaching us here that while you're praying in tongues and you're praying in your prayer language, you are building yourself up even in your faith. And that's a very powerful concept. First Corinthians 14, 4, just to briefly echo that statement. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. And I think we could say that that's clearly talking about the private prayer language because the other manifestation where you're speaking in Geno's tongues or you're speaking in a public setting where there's an interpreter, those are edifying the church. But here, when you're in your private prayer language praying in tongues, you are edifying yourself. You are building yourself up. The word edify really means to build up. You are edifying yourself you are building yourself up in your most holy faith and the spirit of God is now praying through you. First Corinthians 14 verses 14 through 15. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Again, that goes to the idea that my mind is unfruitful. I don't understand what I pray. I don't know what I'm praying in a, in a natural mental sense. But when I'm praying in my private prayer language, my spirit prays. So now let's combine those ideas. And let me just say, gosh, this is just this is just so amazing. It's so wonderful. Every time I go through these passages, I'm just I'm just struck again. But notice this. In 1 Corinthians 14.2, it says, anyone who speaks in a tongue utters mysteries by the Spirit, right? So the Spirit of God is uttering mysteries, the mysteries of God through your mouth. But notice in verses 14, same chapter, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Again, there's a union in prayer between your spirit and the spirit of God, which is one unified spirit at your salvation, now praying together through your mouth. That's what happens when you're praying in your private prayer language. And I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty important to me. Romans eight twenty six through 27. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So notice the words there, wordless groans. You might have heard people talk about a deep groaning coming on them in a time of deep prayer. I think that's wonderful. I think that's great. That's not something I've ever personally experienced, but apparently, you know, other people have, and it's a very powerful thing. I don't know from the Greek that we could exactly say that that's what this passage is talking about. The word groans, wordless groans, is really a more of an unutterable uh, sigh. I think if you really study the words out, but they're kind of difficult words to study because they don't show up in the in the text or in the Greek version of the Bible very often. But I want to focus here on 
the relationship between God's spirit and my spirit in prayer. Notice it said the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we should pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us. And it says, he who searches the heart, that's God, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. You see, when you pray in your private prayer language, just to kind of recap these ideas, there is a union of prayer and purpose between your Spirit and God's Spirit. God's Spirit is literally in union with your spirit, and now praying through your mouth, mysteries and the perfect will of God, literally interceding for you and the world around you according to the perfect will of God. Your spirit and God's spirit are simultaneously praying. God is praying his perfect prayer His perfect will. You know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have those times and you just don't know exactly what to pray. You don't know in your mind what God's perfect will is. You don't know exactly what you should say or what you should do. But God does. God knows his perfect will for your life in every situation. God knows the mysteries, the hidden things, the hidden treasures, the hidden revelation, the hidden direction that's going to bless you in that moment. And God wants to pray it for you through your mouth. God himself, the creator of the universe, wants to pray for you through your mouth. I mean, that is a big statement, but that is the truth. And I tell you what, to have that in my life, I don't mind looking weird. I'll look as weird as I need to look. To have the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, pray for me. Through my mouth, his perfect will. I'll, I'll, man, I'll look weird. I'll sound weird. I'll act weird. I'll do whatever I need to do. Because, you know, it's not really weird. It's not weird in the eyes of God at all. And that has to be my standard. That has to be my standard for what I'm going to have in my life and what I'm not going to have. If God has something for me, even if my natural mind says it looks strange or sounds strange or other people think it's strange, I don't care. I want what God wants for me. I want to, I want to edify myself. I want to build myself up in my most holy faith. I want to be an empowered witness for the kingdom of God. I want to go out there and use my mouth to, to, to bless the world because God has blessed me. I want to show his love and his power to the world as he's done in my life. And this baptism in the Holy Spirit and this praying in tongues in my private prayer language, these are two wonderful, powerful gifts that God has for all of his people. And, you know, let me just say, uh, I've been reading a little bit of church history lately, and I want to read you a passage. This is uh, from Church History in Print. Excuse me. The book is called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. And I just read this the other day, and I want to read this to you because this is fascinating. Because, you know, we think, they, hey, you know, the charismatic Christians or the tongue-talking Christians or the Pentecostal Christians, those are the weird ones. Those are the wacky ones. I don't want to join myself to that group. You know, there's only a few of those, those weirdos. Well, in fact, that's not true at all. Let me read you this passage. Another significant change in the last hundred years, in addition to where Christianity is growing, 
is what kind of Christianity is growing. The type of Christianity growing fastest in the global south is Pentecostal or charismatic Christianity. Pentecostalism began officially with the Azusa Street Revivals in 1906 and grew significantly but largely unrecognized for a generation or so. By the second half of the 20th century, the movement had gone global. Taken together, the combined groups of Pentecostal and Charismatic Christians grew nearly four times faster than both the Christian population and the world population from 1910 to 2010. As a result, the combined groups of Pentecostal and Charismatic Christians at the time of this writing made up between 25 and 30 percent of all Christians. Now, this book suggests that in the world today, there are two billion Christians. Now, I mean, first of all, that was a number that was bigger than I was expecting, but that's wonderful. Praise God needs to be everybody. But two billion, it's a good place to be. But that means that Pentecostal and charismatic Christians make up hundreds of millions of people. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why maybe that would come as a surprise to you. But the biggest reason is because the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues have been demonized inappropriately by the devil. Because the devil knows that these are two of the most significant gifts that God has for you. That these are going to bless your life and the world around you like few things ever could. He understands the power. He understands what's going to happen. So he has fought to hide the truths of these subjects from the body of Christ. Calling them weird. Convincing people that... The Pentecostals and the Charismatics are weird, but nothing is further from the truth. In fact, God wants everybody to be a Charismatic. Now, the word Pentecostal is a little bit loaded, but God wants everybody to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, praying in new tongues, and walking in their spiritual gifts. That is, my friends, the biblical truth. And again, please hear me as we close. This is not condemnation or judgment in the slightest. Many of us have been just like those Ephesians where we got saved. We became a disciple, but we had not yet heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And still even others of us, we did hear about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we were blinded to its reality. We were told that it's weird. We were told that it's passed away, that God doesn't have that for everybody or, or some such lie. To keep us from what God truly has for us. But God has these blessings for all of his people. And if you have never received the Holy Spirit, again, I ask that you reach out to me or somebody else in your life. Have them meet up with you. Have them pray with you and receive what God has for you today. Thank you for your time. God bless you. See you next time.